This morning, we're going to explore together what I think is perhaps the greatest nosedive in human history. Perhaps the greatest nosedive in human history. And it comes in the life of the man that we've been looking at in First and Second Samuel, King David. Now, David had experienced God's favor in his life in some astounding ways. Okay, this guy started off as a poor shepherd musician. He then becomes a warrior, and then a general, and then eventually the king over all of Israel. And if that weren't enough, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we saw that God promised that he wasn't only going to establish David's kingdom, but that actually David's dynasty would rule forever, ultimately in being realized in Jesus Christ. I mean, this guy has been blessed by God beyond belief. And it's with that backdrop that 2 Samuel chapter 11 hits us like a ton of bricks. It's a nosedive for the ages. Let me tell you the story before we dig into the details. 2 Samuel 11 begins by describing a particular season in Israel. It's springtime, which is the ideal time in ancient Israel to go off to war because of weather reasons. And so David sends his army and his general out to battle, but this time, kind of strangely, he stays home. And David is enjoying just a kind of leisurely, beautiful time in life. In fact, in 2 Samuel 11, it describes him as taking a nap. Then he gets up off his couch and he goes onto the roof of his palace. You know, that in the Middle East, it's very, very hot. And in the evening, you'd go on the roof of your house just to kind of get a little bit of a breeze. He's just enjoying life. And in the distance, he sees a woman naked, bathing on her roof. Now, being in the palace, David has the, the highest view. And he looks long at this woman and notices... She, he notices, man, she is gorgeous. So instead of kind of turning, moving away from it, he actually brings one of his servants and he says, why don't you find out who this lady is? And he tells her, or he tells him, David, don't you know this, this woman is Bathsheba? Now th this is significant because once the king knows what her name is, he knows just who she is. She's the granddaughter of one of David's sort of elder, most trusted counselors. The, the daughter of one of his former military companions. And, of course, here's the kicker. The wife of Uriah the Hittite, one of Israel's 30 most valiant warriors. And knowing all this, despite it, David says, I want you to... Tell her to come to the palace for a meeting. Probably under the guise of like, how are you doing since your husband is off doing battle? And he seduces her. Commits adultery and she becomes pregnant. It's a capital offense. And instead of confessing his sin as David had done so many times before, this man who is described as a man after God's own heart decides he's going to play out an elaborate scheme of deception. He 
sends for Uriah to come back from the front lines of battle under the guise that he wants to learn how the army is doing. And we know right away this is a bit strange. They have runners for this. They don't need one of the 30 greatest warriors in all of Israel just to give the king a little update. But Uriah comes at the king's behest because the king wants to convince Uriah to take a little break, stay at home, sleep with his wife, and then no one will be the wiser about the whole pregnancy thing. So David thinks, oh, this scheme is going to work, but Uriah won't do it. He brings Uriah home, but Uriah won't go to his house to sleep in his bed and sleep with his wife. So the king brings Uriah back to him, and he, he's at this point totally freaked out because he realizes his plan isn't really working. And so he starts to try and manipulate Uriah. The first way he does it is he takes sort of a subtle shot at Uriah's virility. He goes, well, you didn't go home to see your wife last night. Like, what's going on with you? You're not much of a man. Uriah's not faced. Then the king goes so far as to try and getting, gets Uriah drunk still won't go home. And Uriah explains, he says, look, I'm not going to go sleep in my bed and be intimate with my wife. When the ark of God is in a tent and my compatriots are camping in the open field. See, unlike David, Uriah still thought of himself as being on duty. And so David realizes, man, my, my plan's not going to work. So he writes a note to his general, Joab, puts it in Uriah's hand. Uriah's carrying his own death note. And the note essentially says, I want you to put Uriah in the front lines of battle where it's the fiercest, and when the battle really kicks up, I want you to pull the men back. And Uriah is killed in battle. The husband's eliminated. News comes back, Bathsheba mourns. And then David does one of the sickest things you can imagine, something that's often missed at face value in the story. He pretends to be sort of an altruistic, what the Bible calls a kinsman redeemer. You see, in ancient Israel, when a woman would become a widow, she was in terrible financial duress. And so often there would be a close relative, a kinsman redeemer, who would take the woman as his own wife to provide for her so that she wouldn't die. And David, under the guise of altruism, brings Bathsheba to be his wife. And so now when everyone's deceived into thinking that the child is totally legit. This man after God's own heart lies, adultery, deception, murder. And he's got everybody fooled. But then the chapter closes in verse 27 with these words. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Almost everyone was fooled. Now, you may be sitting here going, okay, nice story. So what? what what's this got to do with me? Well, that's a good question. It brings me to the first part of our big idea for the morning. First part, and we'll complete the rest of this at the very end. But the first part of our big idea is this. You're not beyond terrible sin. 
It's the first part of the big idea of this chapter as we think about how does this apply to us. It's this. You're not beyond terrible sin. And neither am I. If the man after God's own heart can go from being promised an eternal dynasty to seducing truly a helpless woman, then you and I cannot kid ourselves. We are not beyond terrible sin. You know, I have to confess, <laughs> don't worry, gosh, you, when you're looking at a story like this and then you say, I must confess, you're like, ooh, where's this going? Not there, I promise. <laughs> no, what I have to confess, I don't think I believed this big idea for probably the first 90% of my time in ministry. Many of you have often hear, I mean, it's like we hear about it almost quarterly, it seems, about some pastor who's been caught, you know, in just gross sexual sin or gross financial sin, this sort of thing. And I have to admit, for most of my life in ministry, I would hear that stuff and go, I cannot believe that. Like, that's shocking. How could they have ever done that? You study this passage and you realize, boy, that is utter naivete. Totally foolish. None of us are beyond terrible sin. Now, we'll, we'll complete that big idea in a moment, but because of that, here's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to look at the first few verses of this chapter a bit more carefully. Because if we are not beyond the reach of terrible sin, I think we had better educate ourselves about how sin and temptation work. And so what I want us to do is look at this scene in David's life, and we're going to see essentially five pieces of the anatomy of sin and temptation, primarily so that we would have the wisdom of Scripture to know how to fight. And then at the end, we'll complete the big idea. So, if we're not beyond <clears throat> terrible sin, we had better know the anatomy of sin and temptation. <clears throat> Five pieces. Here's the first one. Our greatest temptations may come in our best seasons. Our greatest temptations may come in our best seasons. Let's take a look at verse 1. In the spring of the year, <clears throat> the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him, and Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbath. What an incredible time in David's life. His military is so strong that he, this incredible warrior, doesn't even have to join them for the battles for them to enjoy wild success. And it's in the midst of this greatest season, this best season, that David's greatest temptation comes. See, the reality is that our greatest temptations may very well come in our best seasons. Now, in reality, temptation is typically no more, let's say, in difficult seasons or in easy seasons. We experience temptation in all of them. Okay, like, for example, I would tell you, I feel far more temptation during my difficult seasons. 
It's so much easier for me to give way to the slavery of, of fear and anxiety in tough seasons rather than in good ones. You know, similarly, I am far quicker to forget my identity in Christ when things are going bad or badly than when things are going well. It's not that I'm saying that this passage teaches, hey, if you're in a good season, you're going to experience a ton more temptation. No, it's just all about expectation. When I'm in a bad season, like circumstantially, I expect temptation to come. I expect all of my typical besetting temptations to just be amped up a level. And that's really the difference between the good seasons and the bad. It's not that I actually experience more temptation. It's just that temptation tends to blindside me when everything is going well. You ever seen a, a quarterback get blindsided before? It's not a, a pretty sight. Okay, for, a, for those of you who don't love football and don't love the Eagles, and I'm really sorry for you, like, here's how this often works. Like, a right-handed quarterback is protected by the left guard, okay, on his blind side. So he's sort of like this. As you can tell, I never played football. Of course, from the stature, you can tell as well. So what happens is, like, he's turned like this, and sometimes an offensive lineman, left guard, can so badly miss his assignment that a defender will run right into the quarterback at full speed. And the reason that this is one of the most dangerous hits in all of football is because they don't see it coming. The reason why it's often the case that our greatest temptations come in our best seasons isn't because there's more temptation. It's because we're just blind to it because we tend to coast. So if you're here and you're in like a great season, my goal is not to freak you out or get you looking for suffering, okay? Enjoy your life. Suffering will find you, okay? Not a problem. Here's what I would encourage you with. If you're in an awesome season in life, utilize this time to raise the bar of your affection for God rather than to coast. If everything in life right now, it's like it's not perfect, but it's clicking, it's going well, give yourself wholeheartedly to pursuing God, getting to know him, fellowshipping with his people, sharing his love with those who don't yet know him. Go hard after him. Raise the level of your affections such that when that temptation comes, you're like, why? I love him. My affections for him are peaked. The first piece of the anatomy of sin is that our greatest temptations may come in our best seasons. And there's a reason for that, another reason for that, and that leads us to the second piece of the anatomy of sin and temptation, which is that temptation preys on a peacetime attitude. Temptation preys on a peacetime attitude. Let's take a look at verses 1 and 2. I want you to watch for the repetition. In the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle. Who's a king? David. Next one. David sent Joab. Okay, so already just this construction helps us see there's something going on here that isn't quite right. The kings go out to battle. David didn't go out to battle, okay? And his servants with him in all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbath. But David remained at Jerusalem. You're like, yeah, I got it the first time. Remember, when the Bible emphasizes, it's almost 
always, or actually when the Bible repeats, it's almost always for, rep- for emphasis. That sentence was really challenging for me. <laughs> it's almost always for emphasis. Why is he saying multiple times that David stayed home? To clue us in that something is terribly wrong. And then it goes on. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. Israel's off at war. Dude's taken a nap. He has a peacetime attitude. And temptation preys on a peacetime attitude. I mean, let, let's be honest. This is something all of us probably need to learn significantly. Because I'd venture to say the vast majority of us walked in here not really thinking, oh, there's a war going on around me. No, you're like, no, I'm good. Walked here. It was a little warm, but no war. The reality, according to the scripture, is there's actually a war going on all the time for your heart. It's a war that uh, Paul Tripp calls a glory war. Uh, Let me read a a quote from him. He's one of my favorite authors, Paul Tripp. He, He says this, Human beings are hardwired for glory. That's why we're so attracted to glorious things. We love the glory of a great painting or a beautiful piece of music. We love the excitement of an athletic contest or a feat of daring. Whenever someone calls it an athletic contest, you know they're not much of a sports fan, but whatever. We love the sleight of hand of a great musician or the sizzle of a well-seared steak. We love the glory of a moment of success or the recognition of people around us. We're attracted to the glory of wealth or the beauty of the human body. We're very powerfully oriented to the glory to glory, and because we are, we live in pursuit of it. The glory orientation that is inside of every person is meant to drive us to God. He goes on, here's the problem. This is where the war comes in. The created world is not in possession of ultimate glory. The kind of glory that can satisfy your heart. The glory of the created world is sign glory. What that means is that all the glory of the created world is a sign meant to point you to the ultimate glory where true satisfaction, grace, mercy, and eternal life can be found in Jesus Christ alone. And according to Paul in Ephesians 6, we're actually at war all the time. Ephesians 6.12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There's a cosmic war going on in this room for your heart. And it's a glory war. Will you build your life around seeking sign glories or will you enjoy sign glories and allow them to point you to the ultimate glory, God himself? In other words, will you build your life around a marriage, around children, around a bank account, around a career, around an education, or will you enjoy those as means of worshiping the one who is ultimate glory, living for him, Jesus Christ? See, the reality is that David doesn't recognize a war is going on, and many of us don't either. 
and sin preys on a peacetime attitude. So here's just kind of a, a simple question for all of us to reflect on, certainly myself included. Does your attitude better reflect David's peacetime or Paul's wartime? Like when you wake up in the morning, is that, man, it's peacetime. Or is it, no, there's war going on for my heart right now. Let, let's fight. Let's cling to Jesus. Let's remember what's true. Or you're like, let's just coast. Sin preys on a peacetime attitude. I'm going to uh, skip number three for the most part, but I, I want to just briefly say the point, explain it, but we're going to move quicker than I was planning. The third thing we see in the anatomy of sin and temptation is that where mission is weak, temptation is strong. Where mission is weak, temptation is strong. David, in this sort of peacetime attitude, has totally forgotten who he is and what his mission is. He is the king, and he has a mission. You and I, if we're followers of Jesus, we have a mission. Acts 1 says we're to be witnesses, pointing a world that so desperately needs Jesus to him and his grace. And the reason I wanted to bring this one up just very briefly is to say this. When we lose sight of our mission and live for ourselves, we very quickly stumble into all the self-centered temptations that the scriptures describe. One way that we fight temptation is by embracing mission because then we don't have time for all that shenanigans. So my encouragement would, to you would just simply be this. Just take whatever you're doing in your life and do it with greater gospel intentionality. Do you have a passion for something? You know, maybe a hobby? Invite someone from your city group and someone who doesn't yet know Jesus to do that with you. Do you eat? Like, yeah, 21 times a week on my best weeks. Share some of those meals with people who don't yet know Jesus. Do you pray? Pray for some of your friends who don't yet know and love Christ. Seek opportunity and then open your mouth and point them to Jesus just by saying, tell them your story. This is how I came to know Jesus. People love stories. Where mission is weak, temptation is strong. Let's embrace our mission. Fourth, piece of the anatomy of sin, and this one's really important. Massive sins begin with subtle compromise. Massive sins begin with subtle compromise. David did not jump from the Davidic covenant directly into bed with Bathsheba. There were steps along the way, and some of them weren't even sin. They were just kind of gray. It's not a sin for a king to not go out to war. It's not a sin to notice a beautiful man or woman. It's not a sin to have an actual meeting to ask someone how they're doing. But David knows his heart. And he knows each of these are just these subtle compromises. And here's the thing with subtle compromises. What they do is they weaken your defenses. That's why, you know, when you hear about that pastor who all of a sudden slept with like half of his congregation, and you go, how did that ever happen? Well, it didn't happen overnight. 
It's like, oh, my personal devotional life, I got sermons to prepare. Yeah. Oh, you know, I know these websites kind of really tempt me a bit to be materialistic or lustful, but, yeah, you know, it's just a website. I'm not actually doing it. I'm just talking about the, the pastor thing now. Oh, you know, yeah, it's an expense report, but, you know, you don't have to be too detailed with that. Oh, you know, I know I was a little disrespectful with my wife, but, you know, she's being real difficult today. Then all of a sudden, years of subtle compromise and the weakening of defenses against sin, and boom, an affair seems like, oh, perfectly logical. You know, I love you, and so I need to ask you, where are your subtle compromises? Where are your subtle compromises? Maybe it's just using technology a little too much, a little too much time on social media, and so you can't really focus when you want to spend some time with God. Maybe it's like alcohol. Nothing wrong with having a drink. Thomas Jefferson, beer is proof that God loves us, has a wonderful plan for our lives. But maybe you're just drinking a little too much. Kind of in that, actually, I think that was Ben Franklin, but you're kind of in that, yeah, it is what it is. Clearly, that wasn't written into the manuscript. Um, but, you know, it's just like subtle compromise. Like, ah, uh, maybe I'm just in that slightly hate, I'm just buzzed. And then all of a sudden, the defense is coming down. Um, me and my boyfriend, girlfriend, it's kind of a gray area what we're doing right here. Subtle compromise. Yeah, I know I probably shouldn't be watching YouTube at work. Subtle compromise, stealing time from. Oh, I know I probably shouldn't be self-serving and kind of like talk poorly about this coworker in front of my boss trying to elevate myself, but I really need to get ahead here. Then all of a sudden, I mean, I don't know what your subtle compromise is. Maybe it's just like, eh, spending time with God, the living God who loves me. I'm busy. Maybe you're in my, my boat. I just had a kid. You know, it's like, and then suddenly that subtle compromise, even areas, um, listen, some of the things I just described are not sins. You miss a day having your devotions. I just want to assure you, God loves you. Jesus died for you. You're not sinning. But these subtle compromises just make it so easy. They just flower into disasters. Today's subtle compromises are tomorrow's devastations. So I just want, to, want us to reflect, where are my compromises? I'll just tell you, for me, man, it, it was Twitter. That thing had to go. Fifth piece, final piece. Don't worry, we're going to get to some good news. I know you're like, dude, it's summertime. Are you serious with this sermon? Don't worry, we're going to get to some good news now. It won't look like it at first. Verse 27. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Here's the fifth piece of the anatomy of sin and temptation you have to know. God is not fooled. God is not fooled. Everyone around you may be fooled. And you may have been 
subtly capable of even fooling yourself with maybe your subtle compromise, your peacetime lifestyle, or maybe it's just flowered into something disastrous. God is not fooled. And that actually does bring us to some glorious news. I want to complete the big idea for the morning. You're not beyond terrible sin or amazing grace. You're not beyond terrible sin or amazing grace. And let me tell you why. The same God who is not fooled is the same God who sent Christ Jesus in the world to save sinners. The same God who is not fooled, who is holy and righteous, is the same God who gives us the righteousness of Jesus Christ through faith alone. The same God who is not fooled is full of grace and mercy for those of us who have nosedived. The same God who is not fooled, who could justly punish us eternally for our sin, put our condemnation on his perfect son, Jesus Christ. The same God who is not fooled has said, I will never leave you or forsake you in Christ Jesus and in Christ Jesus alone there is no condemnation no condemnation for those who are in Christ the same God who is not fooled through Jesus Christ will redeem you love you forgive you and adopt you forever and you know what that does it actually gives us the freedom to repent See, if you're here and maybe you're living this peacetime lifestyle, maybe you're making subtle compromises, or maybe you're sitting here going, dude, if you don't even know how this is flowered out of control, and if I repent, it's going to cost me. No matter where you are on that continuum, God's grace has appeared that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If you put your faith in Jesus, there is a word of no condemnation over you. And now you are empowered by the Spirit to repent. You don't have to keep walking the same direction. You can confess to the Lord, to a trusted friend, city group leader, pastor today. You don't have to carry this in the same way any longer. And yeah, it may cost you big time to repent, and it is so worth it. I would rather walk in the freedom of repentance, even if it meant massive punishment, than the deception of pretending. God is not fooled, and that is glorious news. The same God who is not fooled is the same God that you, his grace you cannot outsin. So I want to urge you, run to Jesus Christ. For the first time today, for the millionth time today. He is full of grace and mercy. And he will teach us from the anatomy of sin to fight with faith. Now let's prepare our hearts to respond. In a moment, we're gonna respond as we always do in singing songs of praise because it's the most appropriate thing to do when you realize that the God who is not fooled is the same God that you can't out his grace. So we're gonna sing. I want to join you. I want to ask you to join us and sing your hearts out.
But maybe for you it means, you know what, I need to take a couple quiet moments, go to the back and have someone pray for me because I'm living in this subtle thing or it's flowered out of control. Maybe it means, you know what, I'm, I have neglected my mission and so I, I need to take some time just right here and make a commitment to like later this week I'm going to talk to God about that. Maybe it's, no, I've repented and I am feeling the consequences of it. I'd invite you and really anyone who calls on the name of Jesus to the comfort of the communion table. Communion tables are in front and back. There's gluten-free options in the back. That table is a meal of remembrance where we remember the broken body, bread, shed blood of Christ. You dip it, take it, and you remember. I cannot out-sin the amazing grace of God in Jesus Christ alone. And allow that to be your comfort and even your freedom to go a new direction. Let's pray. Father, thank you that your grace is truly amazing and that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and that we can now consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to you. Father, I pray that we would take steps of life today, whatever that means for us in particular. And now we lift our hearts and our minds and our voices to you in worship because you, the God who is not fooled, is the God of grace full of mercy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.